Hey guys, due to entirely foreseen, totally avoidable circumstances, Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is going to go on a two-week hiatus. We know this is a disappointment and that nothing can make up for it, that we alone send a shining beam of meaning into otherwise meaningless lives lived by rote. As an apology, we'll instead put out two episodes of an experimental thing we're doing called Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata colon Podcast Guys Talking to Erratic Errata. So get hype! <laughs> Podcast Guys takes a long view and, this may surprise you, a long price. Spoilers are everywhere. Don't listen. Good morning, faithful reader. Welcome, fortunate seeker. This is Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a whirlwind reread of A Practical Guide to Evil, where a historian and a literature scholar tackle the big questions about one of the greatest novels of the age, such as Why is Hakram so weird about the clan? When will Hakram get to stand on Ubu's grave? And, speaking of orcs, why does Kat hate her own kind so much? Uh, internalized Kalwin racism, I guess? Treason is more art than act. Dread Emperor traitorous. This chapter deals with treason. That is, in fact, more act than art, because it is not terribly stealthy. The main crux of the chapter is Catherine checks on Hunter and then finds out someone's been scrying in her ranks. And they're scrying southwards. That's the main crux of the chapter in terms of word count. I think it's far from the most important part of the chapter, which is the last chunk when we get to that point. What possibly could happen there? <laughs> but the chapter starts off on a pretty low-key note. It, be it begins with Kat and Kevin beginning their day together in a tent. It's all nice and sweet and uh, stay longer. I can't, but I want to. It's, it's very cute. It's very sweet. And the departure of the mage here ends with her dressed in armor and sashaying out of the tent, which I have to say is quite the feat, which Kat notices as well, of course. But yeah, that Faye Grace, I guess. Face, if you will. Yes, her face. Good call. That face, that face, that beautiful face, if I may quote the producers. But I will not. Instead, I will quote Catherine, who tells us, in reflection on Black's children's tales, there was a formula to most Callowin fairy tales, patterns that could be found if you looked. And I recognize that, especially what, we're, what she says there, and then what we'll explain to you shortly, I'm sure, because somebody's marked it as interesting. While this is a simplistic version of it, recognizing that fairy tales follow a basic arc often, it's still a recognition of 
patterns in a society where I know Catherine's unusually fortunate in her education, but I, I don't know. I just get the vibe that literary criticism, literary analysis, uh, being a literature scholar is perhaps not the focus of the general education at the lore home for tragically orphaned girls or whatever it was called. Something great like that. It it seems like teaching kids how to understand the meta narrative that literally controls the world would not be one of Black's priorities in setting up the orphanages, no. So Catherine doing this demonstrates a bit of natural predisposition towards her story foo that she whips out later. She's just built different is what you're saying. Much like Napoleon. <laughs> the worst. Uh, yeah, but... Kat goes in to describe this formula for the fairy tales a little bit. Um, and I know that we separated ourselves from him very early on, but I Some feel like... You do not regret. No, absolutely not. But I feel like Kat's telling us to, to pull out, uh, to bring back in old Joseph to, to hang out with us a little bit more because she gives us the, um, the Callowan fairy tale formula, which is... The hero is a, the characters established. They're given a problem. There's a catalyst to create the struggle. The fight changes them in some way. Victory brings a resolution, creating the new state of affairs for the ongoing whatever whatever comes next. Happy ending, yada yada yada. There's a nice cycle here, which is just how fairy tales work in Callow. Uh, and you know. I don't know that we're meant to necessarily apply this broadly to what we're reading ourselves, but uh, there are people who would have things to say about this, I'm sure. I'm not one of them, of course. I, I'm not that kind. I'm not pretentious enough to dig into the meta narrative that drives a culture's stories. That's well beyond me, but some people have. Did you know Joseph Campbell did not hold a doctorate? I did not know that. I was looking it up because I was going to build off of your statement with, you know, well, what the good Dr. Campbell, or at the very least, the Dr. Campbell didn't say, and I forgot what I was going to say because I couldn't say Dr. Campbell. It's just Mr. Camp, Mr. C. Speaking of things that begin with C, however, capturing. Yep, that, that phrase pulled out of a sentence. Uh, Kat's talking about Precy, uh fairy tales, crazy stories, specifically the Tugreb. Which sound great. Mm -hmm. E.E. -E. <laughs> Release the fairy tales. Please. We know you have them. Let them out. Uh, we get a specific example of a Tugreb tale called The Well in the Sands uh, where a woman is trying to dig a, dig a well um, to save her tribe from thirst. And she manages this through stealing from Suninka, but also by capturing a d goblin and forcing the goblin to dig for her. And I gotta say, the Praces sure are Praces. <laughs> they're, they're out here telling this story about, uh, you know, the, this base fairy tale, this sort of cultural story, and built into it is finding and enslaving a goblin to do manual labor for you. Engineering labor, to be clear. It's a digging up a well. So completely up their alley, but still, it's extremely Precy. And I'm given to understand this sort of the fox and socks of Precy literature. So mm -hmm. what does it tell you about their society? That they like goblins a lot for manual labor. And that goblins do well. Sorry, they do wells. They, they make right. wells. Goblins are good at wells. Which means 
Perhaps goblin munitions are water-based. Let's look into this. I've looked. I don't think that holds up. Sorry. Catherine tells us that she has a little trouble understanding Black's numbers, his ledgers he gives her. But she does recognize that the Empire is apparently easier to govern after losing wars. And her response to this is that if that was true, then the implications were worrying. Praise hadn't lost a war since my teacher became the Black Knight about 40 years ago. I just want to point out, this is Catherine Foundling, who a book ago was looking to solve the problem of Praise's ruling Callow. And now her problem is Praise might not be comfortably ruling for long. However, my point is that her concern was that if Praise collapsed into civil war, there was no certainty the Empress would come out on top. And Catherine makes a lot of predictions. Some of them are very true. Some of them are are very not. Many concerns of hers don't happen because she takes steps to avoid them. But here, Praise actually does collapse is a strong word. Praise does decline into a civil war in a few years' time. But the entire time, it is certain the Empress would come out on top. Oh, yeah. She just kind of cultivates a civil war over on the, what, the Blessed Isle? Just to kind of keep one running because it's convenient at the time. Militia is absolutely unraveling, but she's unraveling at a corner. The tapestry is still beautiful. It's like an amputation unraveling. You got to unravel a corner to save the center. Truebloods were racist, aristocratic pricks, but they weren't stupid. They wouldn't pick a fight they didn't think they could win. Sure, but also not stupid and immune to trickery by Alaya. Right. Um, these are Juniper is a very strong-willed, self-confident hero, and Militia breaks her with a thought. Don't don't stand against her. And it is yeah, it is Militia that we are talking about, not Trace generally. Um, and and this this follows to tie back to the conversation that the Bard and Billiam had uh, a few chapters ago in their interlude, um, because if you recall. The bard says there, there's some back and forth about whether or not it's worth rebelling against praise because actually praise is better than Callow in a lot of ways. Oops. But what the bard boils down to is militia won't always be in charge. There will be other dread emperors and empresses who are worse. And so we need to rebel now before those worse things happen. Uh, there's a lot of nuance there. There's a bigger discussion, but that's the broad strokes. And it's interesting to kind of run that parallel to Kat's thought process here because she says uh, keeping Callow as a semi-independent vassal state under malicious praise was one thing, but under someone like Eris, no. I'd rather raise a flag in rebellion than allow that. She she has a massive issue with William. She talks about the dead Callow. And, you know, there's this comes up a lot with where William is and his decisions and how he's doing a rebellion against a pretty effective, like, competent government, and how that makes him bad, and he's hurting Callow. And now here's Kat on the other side of that, saying if it were a different person in charge, she'd be doing the exact same thing. So her line between herself and William boils down to, frankly, how competent the current tyrant is. And I know we try not to use tyrant too often to avoid confusing Brace and Halika, but... Uh, the the dread emperor dread empress it it really is just practicality for cat there's no ideological underpinnings aside from callow and 
protecting Callow and the Callow Inns specifically. And so it's, it's interesting to see a very similar argument to the one that showed up in the interlude come up here in Kat's internal monologue. I just appreciate that Catherine, I want to save Callow Foundling, has reached the point where she's just trying to preserve the Precy Order. The depths to which she has fallen in her ascent are tasty. On her priority list, she's got a 1A and a 1B, and those two things are the lives and safety of all Kaloans, and also the status quo, and which one comes first kind of goes back and forth. Yes, but if she can't figure this out, it's going to blow up in her face. Which is true for a number of problems. Um, Kat realizes that before she can start making these big sweeping moves, she needs to handle things back home, home being this camp that she's in. Um, and after her discussion with Black, she needs she realizes she needs to be taking the initiative. Uh, this is what Black told her to do. And she says that she needs to start solving problems before they blew up in her face. And to be clear, the problems she's talking about are <laughs> it, it would be the potential disloyalty of her officer corps, which means that time to take the initiative, let's solve these problems now, means I'm going to start proactively testing the loyalty of all of my friends in a way that uh, comforts me to to put my life in their hands. It's, it's such a weird, like, all right, I'm gung-ho about this now. Let's go test my friends. I'm sure it will work out for her magnificently by the end of the chapter. Don't worry. Oh, okay, cool. Speaking of magnificent things, do you recall our perhaps preoccupation with chariots where they've come up before? Uh, no, I don't listen to the podcast, so I don't really know what we talk about. In all honesty, I don't either. But there was a preoccupation, and now there is a chariot. Oh, nice. The tent where Hunter was kept had a full line of guards on it at all times, as did the chariot we kept him in when we were on the move. This is a very appropriate place for a chariot. If you've got a prisoner who you need inside of something while you're traveling, a chariot or a carriage is the ideal thing. So, cool. A, a place where a chariot kind of fits in the setting in a way that I, I really can get behind. A lot of the times chariots show up and it's kind of interesting that they're being used. Here? Yeah, I dig it. Even while he's asleep, four legionaries are watching him at all times, and they have orders to slit his throat the moment it looked like he was waking up. How much good that would actually do if the hero actually returned to consciousness was arguable, but the precaution had been so basic it seemed ridiculous to me not to take it. And she's right on both counts, because Catherine has shown a brutal efficiency with, hey, if the prisoners are getting away and that's a bad thing, make them stop being. But also... The fact that she acknowledged this, yeah, this guy that got bisected and is fine, uh, slitting his throat is probably not going to stop him, but what else can I do? Which is also what I think Isabella's song was about in Encanto, because it's called What Else Can I Do? And I think she's just Catherine Foundling, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, that checks out, actually. That, that movie mm -hmm. does have a lot of sort of undercurrents about which people around Isabella should just be summarily executed, so sure. Isabella is Catherine Foundling. Luisa is Hakram. Uh, Mirabel is Vivian. No, no, our boy is. You think so? Because he, he, can, he can be thiefy because he's got many faces. He doesn't have the vibes. He's Indrani. No, he's Robber. I was going to say, how is, it, nasty little boy. how is it not Robber, the nastiest of them all? And of course, Grandmother is Militia, who slowly just uh, ruins everything. Yeah, she's not practical enough to be black, so I guess militia. And that makes E.E. E. Lin-Manuel Miranda, so... Truly. 
Which is why Practical Guide to Evil is really the Hamilton of our generation. I'd watch a Practical Guide musical. I'd give it a shot. Anyone is interested in writing a Practical Guide to Evil musical and needs to use this podcast as a platform to get things together, oh, please yeah. contact me. 100%. You need, you need people to help with casting, like, whatever you need. <laughs> we'll back you up on that. This would be incredible. As long as it doesn't take, like, actual effort. Like, let's be clear here. I'm not willing to put in any, like, time or effort, but if you just need our voices for a little bit, that's fine. You know who is willing to put in a lot of effort? Who's that? Apprentice. Uh, when Catherine goes to check on Hunter, Apprentice is leaning over his sleeping form, wearing the leather apron I'd first met him in above his riding robes. And I really like the tradesperson aspect to advanced magecraft. These aren't... Uh, pampered soft wizards who sit in their tower and wave their hand and laugh while smoking their pipe as their books fly towards them and they read through their tomes no they're smashing open some ribs carving them open watching the heart beat taking bites seeing how that changes with different applications of spells they're working oh yeah it's really cool magic is often compared to it's an ivory tower fantasy profession or Wizard's Tower, at least. But Z's and his poppy are pretty big on dealing with, I don't know, weird entities. So it makes sense that they'd be digging around, rooting around in there. Oh, well, Kesa absolutely gets hands-on with some entities. I can think of one in particular. <laughs> very, very true. And again, yeah. let the record show, good for him. Truly. So Catherine's going to check on their heroic prisoner, who could be a huge problem. And Masego meets her and says, we have a problem. And she's worried because she thinks Hunter is a problem. Which, given context, sure, yeah, makes sense. And then Masego corrects her, it's not the Hunter, and he says, oh, I can see how that might have sounded alarming. Funny. Gods, spare <laughs> him their attention. He is so wonderful. So Ranger is going to uh, send someone to pick him up because she was under the impression, sorry, she had given the instructions. Uh-huh. That he was to be in the free cities, and he was not, and Ranger is going to be uh, displeased. It's important to remember, not just not where he was supposed to be, but also actively attempting to kill one of Ranger's old acquaintances. So, uh, whoops. And, um, could you name a less enviable person in all of creation right now? Uh, No, I don't think I can. Maybe the Bard, arguably. Yeah, but at least she's like has some influence on the world around her. Hunter's just a meat pile right now. But to the tool of this ire to to recollect Hunter, uh, Ranger is sending someone out, another one of her pupils. Wonder who that could be. Does she have other pupils? She's got a handful. I'm I'm sure they'll pop up here or there. So Masego felt somebody scrying. Oops. So did Catherine have them checking the Silver Spears? And she says that they hadn't, because whatever means the mercenaries had been using to shield themselves from Black's mages, it worked against mine too. Yeah, of course it does. And also, whatever means, it's cheating. They've got a hero. They've Mm -hmm. got priests. They're cheating. But Masego expected this answer because he said, didn't think so. It connected somewhere down south anyway, so the direction was wrong. And I think this is like the clearest sign we get so far scrying can actually be traced like when black is talking with militia through their super secret special scrying we know that there is a risk inherent in the art of eavesdropping of 
you know, spying. But here, he knows where it's going, even if he wasn't able to spy on it. That's nifty. Yeah, I don't... I was going to say, I think there was the implication that that was the case. But I think I might just be remembering from the first read-through. Because, yeah, up until now, it's not exactly clear. Uh, And the level, like the detail he can get here... A few paragraphs down, he says that he can trace the scrying to with an area of about a dozen feet that's pretty specific uh very impressive but first we have to get to that point there's some back and forth first he says it connected down south and then there's uh you know i wasn't really listening in it was good work yada yada and then he after a moment of uh, there's a pause here i did however manage to ferret out where the connection was made on both sides and Sort of like before, it's just Z's bearing the lead again, where <laughs> a very important aspect of this, hey, I know who did it on our side, who's who's the spy, is the last thing he brings up and sort of as an offhanded, casual, oh, by the way. But he can tell her who did it. That part is her job. And Catherine prepares herself spiritually. And she gets so close. As she prepares, she tightens her fingers around the grip of her sword. We're almost there. She's trying. So, I love Apprentice, I love Catherine, but let's be real, who is in so many ways the greatest. Oh, Hockham, of course. So do you know who's just being the worst? Oh, Hockham, of course. We get a dashed line indicating a break in the action. We go from, let's find our rat, I said. Which, uh, Catherine Ratface has nothing to do with this. Why are you so obsessed with him? Nice. He's hot, you have to understand. But we jump ahead into the action where we find out very shortly, not in the first line, where, you know, in media resurrection or whatever they call it, Hakram spits. Black Spear Clan should have known not a spit of loyalty in that blood. One great, probably unintentional pun there, Hakram, with the spitting. Two, chill, bro. This is a people group that, like, I understand there are tensions amongst the clans, and I am far from qualified as a person outside of your universe, much less outside of your in-group, to talk about how you should relate to one another. But also, let's not condemn an entire people group as unworthy. Chill! Yeah, I mean, we lack a lot of the context here for how exactly the clans work and this kind of thing, but, I mean, generally speaking, come on, come on, chill. Like, ease up. They don't ease up, in fact, because two legionaries hold down the struggling and this is obvious from the Black Spear Clan line, Orc snarling back when he showed his teeth. And remember, this Orc is a spy, and the spy is a scryer, and the scryer, this might take you a little while to catch up with, but is a mage. Ooh. We got an Orc mage! Yeah, we don't, we don't see that too often. Not just in the guide, either. Orc mages are not a common archetype. Even in a world where the world's most popular... And unjustly so, role-playing game features both orcs and various spellcasting classes, and 
it still feels very lightly stereotype breaking to play an orc wizard or an orc sorcerer or an orc warlork. Got any others? Mistork. That's mystic, or, but with orc in it. Or a bork. That's bard, but with orc in it. <laughs> is is it? Or dork, which is druid with an orc in it. And I think we can all agree that all spellcasters are, in fact, enormous dorks. In the book The Prehistory of the Farside by Gary Larson, a compilation of Gary Larson's Farside cartoons accompanied by much of his commentary, he does tell a story about how he had a comic strip that he put out, which, like so very many of his, were was censored, was threatened not to be released, because he actually used the word dork in it. And dork, said his editor, and apparently a number of dictionaries, is a slang term for penis. Um? And that's one of those cases where I'm fully willing to believe an original etymology or what have you, because eh, words come from places, whatever. I mean, just for... I did a Google of the word dork, and the first definition is a contemptible, socially inept person. The second definition is vulgar slang, North American, a man's penis. I am a North American, though I don't consider myself to be particularly vulgar. I am hip to the slang fam, no cap. And I have to say, no, it isn't. Yeah, definitely not. When we say dork in North America, we specifically mean... Orc druids. Obviously. So this orc druid, who is in fact an orc mage, has kept that fact under wraps, apparently, because he wasn't one of the registered mages in the mage corps, right? I just wish we knew a smidge more about magical talent at this point. Like, obviously some people are magical and some aren't, and we don't even know that they breed for it yet, but really we just know they throw fireballs sometimes. And maybe a lightning bolt, if they're a fairy. And also the warlock is so frightening and we don't even know what he can do. But apparently you can hide being a mage. Which matters, because there are universes and stories where perhaps the gift manifests in a sign on your body. Or it's impossible to hide the secret because there is something about you that will set off various magical scanners. Or you inherently have a slighter build or, you know, what have you. No, this guy's just a secret mage. Cool. I mean, it is worth noting, probably had Apprentice known that he was looking for a secret mage, he could have found this guy pretty easily. Like, there are ways to find people who can do magic, and I think Apprentice is probably one of those ways. Admittedly, but also Apprentice is cheating. Well, yes, I'm just saying there are, there are methods, they're just not commonly available. And I don't know if they're, you know, if they can be replicated by people who aren't named. I, I don't know if there's like a spell that can be cast to find mages, and you just don't normally do that because people aren't hiding it because it's you probably can get paid better if you can do magic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm playing one of those back and forth in my mind right now. The, well, if he knows that we know that he knows, but what the incentive structure would be for scanning the army to make sure there are no secret mages because if there's a secret mage that's a spy but it's probably not going to happen but if you're not scanning for it then it would be something that could happen but and i'm not going to pursue that train of thought any further also because if scanning hmm? the whole ar scanning the whole army looking for secret mages we don't know if it's possible for somebody to have the talent 
and not know it themselves. Like if you were born a, a peasant and grew up your whole life with no no one training you or talking to you about magic, you may not know you can do magic. And then suddenly this tall kid with weird glasses looks at you and you're executed. Whoops. Which embrace would of course be a tragedy, not of human rights, but rather or orc rights, huh? <laughs> because of <laughs> but because of the waste of resources in right. the legions. No, I'm gonna roll that thought around in my mouth like a jawbreaker. Wow. Okay. Uh yeah, so they catch this guy, uh and his first reaction upon being like grabbed by these other soldiers is to try to cast a spell. Smart. He's you know, he begins an incantation. Uh so Kat just breaks his jaw. She just kicks him in the face and it breaks his jaw. So he yikes. can't talk anymore. Uh yeah, I'd say that's a large yikes. But don't worry, she kicks him in the face again after his jaw's broken. Well, if she's going to commit to it, then I take back the yikes. That's just normal. It's just, it's brutal. She's mad at this guy. Break the jaw, sure. You've got a mage, you've got to be, you're in a hurry to shut a mage up, sure. Break the jaw. And then just kick him again for good measure. (laughs) Uh, Important to remember, this is armored boots. So just like kicking with metal into somebody's face. It is an orc, so he's very tough, but... um, Oof. He lost a row, a row of teeth from this, at least. Probably. But fortunately, there are ways around having somebody, you know, trying to interrogate somebody with a broken jaw. Catherine knocks him out cold, which I do have to note again. If you knock somebody out from cranial trauma, y- y- you done some damage there. And I know Catherine's not too worried about that, but it's just, it, it is not a safe way to put someone under. Uh, that acknowledged. Breaking jaws also isn't a safe thing, unless you have assistance. Because immediately Catherine says, Apprentice, I spoke calmly. I'll need you to fix that jaw before we interrogate him. Great. In fact, if someone broke my jaw and then kicked me unconscious, I would prefer they heal it, given the choice. Agreed. The uh, The scene moves on a bit, and Hawkerman Cat realize that they, you know, there's a bit of discussion about who this person's been scrying. Obviously, it's Eris. Uh, and Hawkram says, one of these days, I'm going to stand on that woman's grave and smile. And, uh, you know, it's a nice, a nice dream, a nice threat, I guess, a nice promise. So little, little unfortunate on, on the goal there, but it's a nice dream while it lasts. I mean, do he and Catherine ever have a nice picnic that where she spreads out her mantle and they... That might qualify, right? Actually, I guess it that probably technically would qualify. I don't think Cad is in the ha- the habit of just like throwing her artifact cape on the ground and eating some crackers and cheese on it with Hakram. Although I say that, I give it about a hundred thirty percent chance there is fan art of exactly what I just described. And if anyone wants to send it in to be judged by us, we judge it to be great. Thank you. And if it's AI generated, you are a hack and you don't deserve anything. Speaking of people who are not hacks and who deserve everything, Apprentice doesn't leave before the interrogation. Catherine had thought he would want to be done with this as quickly as possible, but she tells us it looked like curiosity had won out this once. And the thing is, this is the Apprentice. Curiosity always wins out with him. However, he's not curious about run-of-the-mill military procedure. This is an interesting interrogation with information he cares about. The, 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 
it's not curiosity winning out that's special. That's not the this once. This is so, this is something that made him curious. That is the this once thing, Catherine. Learn him like we know him. Yeah, it, it's the apprentice. I Cat will get there. She'll figure him out eventually. But for now, <laughs> for us reading this, Cat's uh, reaction to that is definitely uh, a bit strange. Speaking of a bit strange, I think your reaction was because you cut off my point. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the hidden magecraft isn't a thing because it turns out that the warlock's son, this is to say the apprentice, this is to say Masego, peers at the orc through his spectacles and he says, definitely a mage, though a fairly weak one. Orcs rarely produce casters of a decent caliber. He can see clearly now. The rain is gone. So my apologies for forgetting that this was coming up and that you wanted to talk about it. But yeah, I guess it's confirmation. But delivered with the characteristic bluntness of The Apprentice, who does not typically stand upon social niceties. Yeah, he uh, he lets us know that this, uh, this orc is a fairly weak mage, uh, which is unsurprising to him because apparently orcs rarely produce casters of a decent caliber, according to Zs. From... <sighs> From literally any other Precy, no, maybe not literally any other, from the vast, vast, vast majority of Precy, and from almost everybody else as well, you'd hear a comment like that and think, yikes, this person sucks. Coming from Zs, I guess we just know that orcs don't tend to be very good mages. And that's also interesting. Why? Like, And I don't just mean why are orcs less adept at it, but Apparently, magecraft is something that multiple species can do, which we know this having read the story, but let's interrogate a moment. It's not that Trismegist and sorcery is something unique to humans, and then the drow are able to manipulate the knight, and the dwarves are able to manipulate the deep craft, and the elves are able to manipulate existence itself because they're cheaters. Mm -hmm. Orcs can tap into the same thing humans can often and less well why yeah i, I don't know. know i would i wonder hmm so my first thought is we know that orc culture has a different like worldview than human culture broadly speaking thanks to what Catherine has told us and what we see in the story so i wonder if it's it has an something herself, she should know Right, exactly. So I wonder if it's something to do with that, that like the magic, the talent for magic has something to do with your mindset or if, uh, yeah, I don't know. Or if, honestly, frankly, there's a very real chance that some powerful mage back in the day decided orcs don't get magic or some, you know, like they're, who knows? Speaking of back in the day, we know that the Precy lineages, at least, the great ones, breed for magic, and perhaps they're simply a set of different or even perverse genetic incentives at hand in orcish culture, in orcish, the orcish environment, in something that means the clans have not bred for the trait. They've been, what's, what are the evolutionary words? I think you mean evolution. Oh, what are the evil Ushin words. The Ushin words that are evil, not the good Ushin words. No, it's Karthum, which is a language that we're not in yet. 
I know this because we're told when we enter Khartoum, which means, let's play everyone's favorite game. Are they speaking Mthethwa? My bet? Yes. Yeah, it seems likely, right? No. Well, at this point, I would bet that would be the most convenient language for the squad. Because while I suspect Masego can speak all the relevant local languages because he's big brain, and Catherine has been studying everything, we know Hakram is not a linguistic scholar, and though both his role and his role will have him picking up whatever he needs much faster soon, even outside of an aspect actually dedicated to it, I just think in his role he will be better at it. Sure. It, It seems to me that Maybe Laura Meetson might lend him some difficulty since the older form of the language did. And I gotta say, I have read Middle High German epics, even though I have not dedicated more than a semester of study to that language, probably because I speak German. It's a whole lot easier when you gotta start. So I'm guessing he didn't have a good start. I'm adding a lot to this story when I read it. It's a <laughs> skill of mine. Uh, but we switched to Khartoum when... Dear listeners, we work very hard here to maintain a certain not explicit rating so that all of the myriad children who read the guide, the five, six, seven-year-olds who wet their teeth on this kind of text before moving on to more difficult stories, aren't scandalized by our use of profanities. So the censored account of what happens is that Catherine suggests that their prisoner not speak any lies, and he replies... Heck you, Wallerspawn. To which Hakram growls in Kharsum, watch your god's hecked mouth. This is our switch to Kharsum. I know it's a switch because it's noted, and it continues to be, when the prisoner replies, look at you, human's pet. Which, like, I know malicious human, I know black's human, but the leadership of the 15th is orcish juniper, half-orc cat, orcish Hakram, I guess Ratface is kind of a leadership role, but not in the... No, he's not leadership. He's administrative. Mm-hmm. He's important, and he meets with the leadership, but he's not... And I guess I mean, he derives some he, power from that, but... Yeah, he's got... He's some important, but, like, the true leadership is really Cat, Juniper, uh, like, I guess Hewn, and, you know, you've got some some people at that level. Uh, so of those three, one-sixth of them are human. Right. Also, you, I mean, you probably should include, uh, you know, if you've got the mages, you probably should include Kyle in here, and she's only part human. So they do, they do have human elements, but, like, this is really good. Mm-hmm. Not, not, probably not the best Legion on that front, because, again, that will be the dead vampire, or not dead vampire, the dead dragon Legion. The one that's entirely undead? Unless they count as human. But I, they're more like human-flavored undead. Mm. What is your favorite flavor of undead? Probably raspberry. Really? Okay. I'm always going to be fond of Blue Moon, because it was popular where I was growing up. But mm-hmm. it's not a flavor I really enjoy heavily. Sure. It's just one I couldn't get when I lived in California. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's I like got, a you know, good Midwestern undead. I get that. There's a, I've, I've got like a nostalgia for uh, uh, like a Superman undead with marshmallows in him. But... Ooh, the marshmallows. Mm-hmm. But at this point, yeah, I'm a. I've got a few different. I, I think my favorite flavor of undead is probably there's a, a flavor that is really hard to get anywhere except uh, 
a small town in central Wisconsin, and I don't know if you can find it anywhere else, that's a particular brand and a particular flavor called Pirate's Bounty, and that is the best flavor of Undead. I have not had it, and I'm going to have to seek out necromancers until I can get one of them to raise that for me. It's, it's you know, caramel flesh with some, like, fudge blood and little chunks of M&Ms in there, like most Undead Ooh, have. Ooh, that's it, nice. It's very tasty. Another nice thing... Oh. No, let's keep talking about eating, eating Undead. Actually, no, we're good. We covered it. Moving on. Well, another nice thing is that maybe Hakram's racism is not more justified, of course, because you're not going to justify it, but more understandable given his cultural background, because it might just be a part of the way orcs relate to each other in a friendly way. You know, maybe it's reclaiming slurs at each other. Uh-huh. I'm really trying here because I want my favorite servant of the gods below to be a good boy. Uh, yeah. Look at the response. Look at you, well, human's pet. Another howling wolf's slave serving the masters. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that that's what's going on here because Hawkum's response to that is, you are a shame even on what passes for your clan. This is very much... Uh, <laughs> I, there's there's some interesting things here for sure. Like the howling wolf slave serving the masters, like the the implication that the howling wolves are particularly tied to the tower, which you know we get a bit more information about that later, and it's been mentioned before. But you know, just more, it's cool to see a perspective of a member of a clan who's not as tied to the tower, who's at odds with the howling wolves, uh, commenting on what's going on here. So that that's a cool perspective to see that they're kind of viewed as broken that they are now slaves of the tower um rather than being lifted by the tower uh so there, there's you know it's, it's cool to, to see that uh also you use the word racism i don't know that that's the word for what's happening here these are you know it's just different clans of orc is, is clanism a thing xenophobia we do go with tribalism but i think that word is often weaponized by scholars in my position so uh and also Maybe not. Also isn't exactly, it, for the modern common usage, doesn't exactly apply here. It's not quite the same thing. Close. No, the modern oh. common usage is also a little tainted. I mean, Con- yes. It, yeah. Consider your linguistic hygiene, everyone. Yeah. Basically, anytime the word tribe or clan gets mentioned, you got to hesitate and really think about what's going on. Outside of certain contexts, in which case, no, that is the word, carry on. Oh, Yeah. Yes, there are contexts where you're having a discussion where it makes perfect sense, but still, you know, those are words to consider. Much like there are contexts in which to consider people's unique ethnic background, even though most of the time that really shouldn't be coming up, why does that matter? Mm -hmm. And we get a time like that here, where at the claim that Howling Wolves and Red Shields and Waxing Moons, favorites of the Precy, are running the show, Catherine considers it. Because it's worth examining, oh no, have I fallen into any demographic pitfalls? Hakram's Howling Wolves, Juniper's Red Shields, Nock is Waxing Moons. There are no Black Spears among her senior officers, though there are Black Spears in leadership roles. Morak, who is so ugly, even though she doesn't mention it here, but I just remind everyone that was his one character trait, he is ugly. He's a Black Spear, and he's a Tribune in the 14th, which, honestly, good for him. Yeah, that's not bad. 
for somebody whose main claim to fame so far in the story is being ugly and getting electrocuted, Tribune in the 14th, nice job. If I were ugly and electrocuted, I would also at least like a steady job. Fair. But Catherine's a Callowin girl, even given her racial background. But she identifies all of these right away, simply. Morok's a black spear, and he's not even in her group. She knows what each of her orcish officers, which clan they come from. And that's actually pretty impressive, I think. That's a demographic detail as far as I would think she would be concerned. I have been in situations where I don't know where all of my friends or coworkers come from in terms of state. And we got some pretty big states in the United States. Also some kind of tiny ones. I'm looking at Rhode Island, but I'm glaring at Delaware. As you should. So good for Catherine. I think yeah. that's that shows a real dedication to understanding her people. I respect it for sure. The other thing I respect, though, is there's uh, some snappy back and forth that comes up uh, shortly after this. Uh, Oscar, who is, I just pronounced that like Oscar, like the, goodness gracious. You did, and I hope you keep it. <laughs> Osger, who is the uh, orc the they Grouch? captured. Uh, Osger the Grouch, I mean, he's green. That's a um, Sesame Street reference. And yes. A U.S. American children's television show, which has been spread to many other countries. He is, first of all, there's Cat uh, asking him who his contact is, uh, and his response is, may you kill each other and spare us your work. Great. Uh, just a, you know, solid response. Cat, you know, more directly asks, who is your contact on the other side? <laughs> and Oscar's response is, your mother. So I'm really happy to see that this guy is on, just on the ball with his like comebacks here. And Kat just more or less shrugs and says, I'm an orphan, actually. <laughs> it's uh, th This little exchange here is very, very good. I really like this guy trying to really get under Kat's skin. With, ah, I hope you and Eris kill each other. Get your mom. And <laughs> Kat just gives up and speaks at him. I do want to point out that I think she and Eris do very arguably kill each other a few times. Fair. So Yeah, hey, nice job, Oscar. Cat speaks, tell me, and Oscar the Grouch struggling to resolve inch by inch ends up speaking the name of the contact, followed up by May You Choke on Her Bones. Which again, phenomenal line. May you choke on her bones. I don't mean to skip over the name. It's just a very foreign name to my eyes. So I want to ask, how do you pronounce this name? I would say Fadila Mbafeno. According to my research on the first site that DuckDuckGo gave me behind the name, which I looked up now and not before recording, of course. Well done. This is a feminine name from Arabic, which, ooh, wait, they have IPA. Well, I'm not putting a glottal stop there due to my own limitations, but... Uh, the emphasis is on the first syllable. So, Fadila, if I am managing well enough, though I am aware that actual accurate Arabic employs a lot of sounds that my throat has not learned to make, and that I envy. Arabic is next on my list of languages I would love to learn. It's really cool. All languages are really cool, except for Esperanto. No, people speak that natively now. Hmm. I, when you said all, all languages, languages are good. 
when you said all languages are cool, I had a moment of except Esperanto, maybe. <laughs> so I'm glad we went to the same place. All languages are cool. It's such a shame that in a world with so many constructed languages, nobody has like you know put together a. Why didn't the Bronies make a language out of My Little Pony words? You know, then I could mock that. Oh but no, mock Klingon because it's they're just Trekkies. Yeah, but Rachel Bloom sings "Season of Love" and Klingon on a video you can find on YouTube, mm, okay. and everything she does is valid. Just mock British English. All languages are valid except for the Queen's own English and her wretched sons. Is it the King's English now? I bet it's not. We haven't deified him in the same way. Please don't. That said, the contact is Fadila Mbafeno, and that is a name for later. Mm-hmm. The problem is, Oscar the Grouch doesn't know much more. He knows there's another spy, and that's it. And Catherine's not happy. Yeah, uh, he knows there's another spy. Cat, when he's a little hesitant about giving the name or any other information, Cat uh, speaks again. Answer the question. And he says, there's another turned in summer home, don't know the name or anything else. And like you said, Kat's not pleased with this answer, but I am because he gets for us Cat clenching her fingers. Which I have added to the clench counter, but for reasons we will see shortly, I am not going to reveal what that number is for now. Ooh, my breath is baited. Or, if you prefer, my larynx is clenched. I do prefer that, thank you. I'm so glad I never took biology so I can just insist before you all that my laryngeal sphincter is indeed clenched. Uh, once this is done, once Kat realizes she's got all the information she's going to get in this little interrogation, uh, there's some discussion back and forth about what to do with this guy. Uh, there's the suggestion pretty practically and pretty you know, unexpectedly from Mazego to keep him alive and use him to pass false information. But in the end... Cat is really just talking around the issue. She's going to have him killed, um, which is pretty much all you can do with someone like this. If you're, uh, you know, a military, if you're in charge of a legion of terror in the Dread Empire of Praise. But this brings up a really interesting point that is, for now, pretty well glossed over. Um, well, maybe not glossed over. It's not really dug into, at least, by Catherine or anyone else. But it is thrown out there, and it is an excellent point. Osgur says, I see how it is. When your Callowin buddies do it, they get the soft death, the poisoning that the, the two uh, traitors who murdered someone got, or your special company, the Galaborn. But if it's a green skin, slaves who misbehave get the noose. And he's not... He's not wrong. Like, his point here is a good one. Like, looking back at what has happened since she's been in charge, Callowans have been, uh, you know, they tried to desert en masse, and her response was, eh, you're not my bodyguards. Two Callowans did a murder and got poisoned. Uh, and this guy is a spy, which is, I would say, a bit more directly bad than deserting, but probably in a similar route, uh, realm as the murder desertion. And he's getting the noose. Mersertion. The Mersertion, thank you. It is a tough one. And Kat does recognize that she has made mistakes in the past regarding this, that she, you know, there's some learning she's doing right now, but that this guy is falling on the turning point is rough for him. And it is 
uh, it's one of those things where when you are changing how you treat a situation, the moment of change is a rough moment because then it looks like hypocrisy. And that's what is cats getting thrown in her face. And she handles it pretty well. She handles it very well, considering the inherent weakness and complexity of the moment. Mm -hmm. Because she straight up says, you're right. I've been too soft on people. And things like this will keep happening as long as I continue. So I'll start correcting that error with you. And she tells Hakram that Oscar the Grouch hangs at dawn before the entire Legion. And these are the words of the cold-hearted and perhaps imperious evil ruler of probably more than just a Legion. Don't know why that comes to mind. And again, just so we don't uh, we don't get people coming at us here, yes, he is a spy selling information to an enemy, which is arguably worse than the other thing she's been dealing with, uh, just on scale. So, uh, is there hypocrisy here? Is there turning? Whatever. The important thing is she has is the statement that I am no longer going to be soft. I am. If I do, things will keep happening. Traitors are going to hang. This this decision here is uh kind of a big one and uh also pretty rough for hosger unlike pilgrims traitorous hang ah truly were we able to live in the other world but after this decision cat is not ready to go to bed she's got a lot on her mind uh so she goes for a bit of a walk and uh is hanging out just outside the camp i believe um and meets up with hawkram for uh a pretty pivotal conversation in terms of the entirety of the guide and also two of its main characters. The conversation opens, as all good conversations do, with a few non-segues and discussions outside of any issue at hand, really. And Catherine says that she's got a melody stuck in her head, and it has been for a few months. She tells us it's an old song. It's an old tale from way back when. And by she does, I mean Hermes does in the play Hades right, time. Right, yeah. And she recites some very meaningful lyrics, a number of versions of which are probably already on the internet. But if you have any that you would like featured on the podcast that you made and have all the rights to, talk to us because I, I think that'd actually be cool. Catherine looks up at the night sky and recites the lyric. The first step is the hardest, they said to her. You will have to walk through the fire. It will burn away what you once were and always devour whole a liar. Malcolm's never heard it before. Probably yeah, not important. Probably not important that of the two people here, only one of them has this melody sort of just coming into her head out of the blue and she doesn't know where it's from i mean i've got a melody in my head right now from the mountain goats new album jenny from thebes released today october 27th 2023 or if you're listening to this episode later than that it was released the day that i said it was but not the day i'm actually saying it because we record in advance sorry to destroy the illusion hashtag not sponsored and i don't think you have that tune going through your head correct it sounds a lot like the theme song of the Australian children's television show, Bluey, interestingly. Catherine wants to make sure that 
the very brief jailers of Oscar are trustworthy. She asks Akram, are they trustworthy? And he says, as can be, which is the best they've got right now. And Kat's a little stressed by this, but also energized, I guess, because she's got a plan. So in reaction, we get a double clenching. We get another clenching in this chapter, uh, which brings our clench counter to 14 so far. Cat then assigns Tortoise's line and Tortoise herself to Hawkram's direct command as a sort of uh, counter-spying operation. Their goal is to hunt out the rats. And He's putting Hawkram in charge of an intelligence operation? Uh, yeah, interesting choice, huh? But we get... Uh, she wants all of the informants found, and she wants these all of them dug out, and Hawkram is... Looking forward to it, his his tone low and fierce. He's excited to be doing this. And I don't know about you, but do you do you smell something? Because I smell an aspect solidifying in this moment. It, it is she is it, it, you know as part of this conversation. It, it the conversation begins with aside from Cat's little ditty, begins with setting up Hawkram to find the things Cat needs found. I don't quite smell it, but I do feel a thrum in my fingertips. An electric sure. tingling. I don't know. Magic and name stuff just is very visceral to me. Mm-hmm. And Kat can feel it deep in her bones. She says that they, she can feel it, that they are standing on the edge of a precipice. Not just for the battle to come, not just the campaign, but she's in this moment on this hill, her and Hawkram. She is deciding, will I trust Hawkram? Is he going to be, you know, my guy, my dude? And so she's got a few questions, and this conversation really kicks off as we we really start to uh, to get these two going to where they need to be. Uh, so it begins with Cat asking Hawkroom why he joined the Legions, and uh, Hawkroom corrects her that it's what does he want out of the Legions, and Hawkroom gives uh, a little a story, uh, a, a bit of a summary here. Uh, of his life before the legions and why he sort of joined up um, that, you know, I'm an orc. I, you know, I do it to fight. Uh, I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to be doing. The chief sent me to the college. Why not? Uh, The company fights were whatever. I'm just sort of here until Catherine showed up. Uh, He was struggling. He didn't have a reason to fight, but he wanted one. He just doesn't have that same, desire for battle that other orcs seem to have he was ready to just drift through life until Catherine shows up and the way he describes this is some slip of a girl with a fake name who looked defeat in the face and decided she would win anyway uh he says you've got some blind spots you need someone to cover for you and he realized that was going to be him and that he was good at it hawkram he's got uh he's talking about his purpose what he wants out of the legions and he basically leads with I want to be. I want to serve you. I want to serve alongside you, Catherine. Uh, like his purpose is Catherine at this point, and then he transitions into another layer of this that he's following Cat. Uh, he realizes that uh, he realized at one point during the melee that half the Empire would rather set the table on fire than let you, Catherine, have a seat, and they expected to win too. 
Don't they always? Sooner or later, better blood wins out. We mongrels are only ever meant to bow. And this makes him furious, and he wants to he wants to crush and cut and destroy with fire and sword. He says, cut through them with fire and sword down until there's nothing left but the whales and a field of ashes. He wants to destroy whatever it takes. Doesn't matter if the world is better or worse afterwards. He just wants to break the odds, to tear everything down, to drag down the people who think they are his betters, her betters, until everybody is just in the ashes together. And he finishes this this speech with, and so, at last, I am an orc. Hockram is, he's got all of these motivations. He's struggling to figure out how he fits in with other orcs and how he fits in with the legions and how he fits in in Preis and with Catherine. And then he realizes, at the end of the day, he's an orc. He's here to fight. Yeah, he's got his purposes, but at the end of the day, it's to destroy. And... You know, Hakram or Kat recently had talked about that, the that the orcs just cut through all the distractions and have a pretty clear worldview. And seeing Hakram arrive at that after Kat's conclusion, arrive at that same conclusion for himself in a very personalized way is extremely cool. And this whole speech Hakram gives is phenomenal. It's it's so good. I encourage you listeners, if you are, you know, following along the podcast and relying on your memory of having read this before and aren't doing a reread alongside us, at least pull this chapter up and check out this passage again, because it is phenomenal. Control F, why did you join the legions? Or if you control F like I do, NS comma space capital H, it will get you where you're going. There you go. It's an amazing and powerful moment. And Catherine doesn't reply directly because they're doing the really cool thing where they don't quite engage with what the other is saying but reply past it letting the conversation fill itself in he says at last i am an orc and her response is i spoke with black the other night he told me he's the most selfish man i'll ever meet and i know him well enough by now to know he meant every word i should have been repulsed by that but i wasn't underneath all the rationalizations i think i'm just the same she talks about her childhood how she thought someone should fix something and how she realized nothing would change if she just waited for someone else to step up. It's not that I think I've been chosen, Hakram. I haven't. I choose, says the squire specifically selected by the Black Knight. (laughs) Following this up with a line that actually sounds a lot more like it should be a chapter and a half from now, I bared my teeth at the moon in a defiant rictus foreshadowing convenient for me to claim it's foreshadowing who can say mm-hmm. this is yeah this is the moment where cat is talking about seizing her own name and she's also uh we get we get her pulling back the curtain and being completely honest with Hawkram and therefore us uh with this speech and it is uh, this is her side of arriving at basically the same conclusion Hawkram has just from her own background, her own storyline to get here. And she gives this this line about how uh, she's no longer willing to let someone else decide my fate for me. Uh, she despises this idea with every fiber of her being. And then, in a not quite altruism, but sort of a mirror of it, she says, and if I don't trust them with my own life, why would I trust them with anyone else's? Why would I entrust them with the land of my birth? 
And this sets up a lot, I would say. Uh, probably uh, not a particularly bold take, but it sets up a lot because this is this is it where Kat is saying she's so opposed to others dictating her life that she can't let anybody dictate what's going on with Callow or the world or anything. But it also... <laughs> It's it's not just I can't have anybody in charge of anybody else. Absolutely not. It's that she doesn't trust anybody except herself. She's, She's so an anarchist. She's a cat archist. Exactly. She's so opposed to anyone else dictating what goes on with her life that she basically just decides to take charge of everybody. <laughs> like uh, you know, Queen of Callow, the Warden, all of these things kind of spring from this idea. And to an extent, because of the way stories work from this moment which is cat admits to us treason but consider who her interlocutor is and where he comes from she is speaking to an orc about not letting others decide her fate any longer which they have for too long she is speaking to an orc about living under occupation she is speaking to an orc about a fight for freedom individually and on the behalf of others collectively she says, I could dance around the words, call it a reform or a takeover of the system, but the truth is simpler. I want to rule Callow. And that's the that's the admission that she's been building up towards, that we've been kind of hinting at in various places. Kat's not messing around. She's she's not here to reform. She is here to be in charge. And, you know, it's she's not admitting this to anybody except Hockram. But she does admit this to Hockram. She expresses these orky, orky sentiments in treasonous words to someone whose name is being molded by her own, not just in light of her own, but necessarily in its shadow and under mm -hmm. its weight. And in this moment, the breeze ruffles the tall grass in the fields below them, and in a moment of beautiful poetry in prose, Shiver and caress both. Hakram's silhouette looked unearthly in the moonlight, more fairy than orc. And as Catherine speaks very orcish words of freedom, Hakram responds. He responds and solidifies this sort of almost ritual that we're seeing here of these two swearing to each other, of these two personifying what this chapter is about. I mean, the title of this chapter is Trust, and here we see it. Hakram is kneeling before Catherine, and he says... He rasps, Warlord. A promise, an oath. I clasped his arm and hoisted him up. Adjutant, I replied. And in that same moment, it became the truth. And the chapter ends with this line, And so it ended, and so it began. We've talked a lot about how chapters in this story end so very well, and this one is in a tier of its own. Well, maybe not in its own. This one's in the top tier. <laughs> It's so good. This exchange, this entire exchange, this meeting on this hilltop, so good. But the way it ends with Hockram coming into his name at Catherine's word and Kat recognizing it is beginning. That everything that they have just talked about, this this oath to each other to tear down the world for daring to think that it could control either of them, it, it solidifies here and it is amazing it would be and it's of such monumental significance that i honestly believe ee e. likely at the very least in the rewrite sought to see if he could find a way to stick this at the end of a book 
this is a book ender of a line. Mm-hmm. Every chapter ends well, but this chapter ends so well. And this week's episode of the podcast ends abruptly. Yes, it does. Because as much as we would like to continue on this discussion basically forever, uh, we are completely out of time. Join us next week on Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata as we discuss... Lost Sleep. Lost Goblins. And Lost Helmets. Wait in their blood. Podcast Guys Talking Erratic Errata is a fan-made podcast discussing Erratic Errata's A Practical Guide to Evil. Check out the full serial at practicalguidetoevil.wordpress.com. Intro music for this episode was Cradle of Your Soul by Lemon Music Studio. Music for the epigraph was Hip Hop Honor by Antipodian Writer. Airhorn was DJ Airhorn Sound by Pixabay. Clench Counter Sound was Interface by Universe Field. Melody Signal was Wind Chimes by Pixabay. Lyrical backing track was Singing Bowl, Low and Loud by Pixabay. Applause effect was Cheering and Clapping Crowd 2 by Pixabay. Successful trumpet fanfare was Success Fanfare Trumpets by Pixabay. Outer music, which even now is elevating my voice to the realms of the divine, is The Price of Freedom by Daddy S. Music. The music is provided by the generous license of Pixabay.com. So are the sound effects. Go and support all the artists who make this work possible by providing their stories and sounds free of charge. If you'd like to support this podcast, follow us on Twitter at TheLongPrice. Listen at this space for a potential new Blue Sky as soon as perhaps next week? Do you have questions, comments, or contributions? Are you overwhelmed by the urge to correct our errors? Do you have a melodic, lyrical, sung-out version of that verse? Email us at thelongprice at gmail.com. If you'd like to materially support our work, find our Patreon at patreon.com slash p-g-t-e-e. Join the ranks of our patrons and be called by name, receive personalized stories and art, and access at least one patron-exclusive tangent. We implore you, don't consider joining. Unless you're already supporting the artists who make this all possible. Special thanks to our patron and villainous hero, Gray, our patron and liege, always a claimant, never the named, our patron and guardian, the Fey Knight, our patron and mentor, the traveling teacher, our patron and dear friend, Aaron, our patron and inspiration, the hopeful romantic, as well as the hordes of cattle below. Next week, chapter 17, Aplomb.